Welcome to tonight's episode of the Remso Martinez Experience. Before we get started, I want to go ahead and give a shout out to some of this episode's sponsors. From self-publishing to podcasting and passive income development, I offer ongoing self-development courses at Champion Pundit Academy, as well as one-on-one private consultations to take you from zero to hero in no time. Learn more at championpunditacademy.com. That's championpunditacademy.com. You want to know what you need more of in your life? Politics. Yeah, nobody ever said that. But if you've got to go ahead and spend money on one nonfiction book, it's got to be the ultimate clash of wisdom, awesomeness, and then obviously the politics. But why not a little bit of comedy? Why not a little bit of a memoir? Why not something that's going to make you say, hey, I actually enjoyed reading this. I laughed. I learned something in the process. Check out my book. It's an Amazon bestseller. You may have heard of it. It's Stay Away from the Libertarians. It talks about all the things you think you might know about libertarians, plus a lot of things that I bet dollars to donuts you don't know about. You can get it on Amazon and Barnes & Noble online. So go on right now. You can get it in print or ebook or Kindle or whatever you call it. Just go out and get it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble online today. It's Stay Away from the Libertarians by Remso W. Martinez. Happens to be me. Martinez experience. Go ahead and do me a favor. Follow me on Twitter at Remso4VA. That's four written out F O R. So it's R E M S O F O R V A. And uh, this week we've got a pretty interesting episode. I mean, every episode is, but we're going to be jumping on a lot of the government shutdown craziness that we've been covering on the show recently. On, I think it was Monday? Yeah, I think it was Monday we covered the fake BuzzFeed article talking about the deaths at national parks that were not a result of the government shutdown. And just yesterday, what we did was we talked a little bit about the TSA workers who were just deciding not to show up to work. So we'll cover a little bit of that and so much more. This week, we have our awesome guest, friend of about three years now, Mr. Alex Merced. Alex, what's going on, man? Thanks for having me on the show, man. How's it been? It's been good. It's It's been real, you know, as real as life gets. Folks, for those of you that don't know, Alex is a uh, he, he, he he's ran for so many public offices. I tend to lose track, but he's currently the vice chair of the Libertarian Party and not to play identity politics, but he's probably the most uh, influential Latino libertarian in the country because of this. And that's right oh. for I'm. Um, like no one who really gives a crap about Marco Rubio. Like who really gives a crap about Marco Rubio? He hasn't done anything since he's walked in the Senate, so you could take his spot. And Ted Cruz is Canadian, so I guess you. I guess you're it, Alex. Uh, I, I guess those are, those are that's that's, a, that's quite the uh, role I got to play. But hey, that's what I do. So you just recently came out with a book, "Profits or Generosity." Um, what what? Why do you think this was? you know, something you had to come out with now? 
because with a title like that, it seems like, you know, everyone's jumping on the whole socialism train. Uh, evil prophets are what caused everything bad in the world to happen. What's what's going on? Why now? Why this book? Now, this is something that I've been thinking about for a while. Like the term prophets or generosity was something I coined um, about a little bit over a year ago when the whole rent is theft thing was starting to kind of come around. And I did this whole video about how rent is not theft. And I talked about how profits are generosity, entrepreneurship is philanthropy, and kind of elaborated on that. But I felt that saying that was such a important point that I wanted to make sure I got it down. But I also wanted to kind of put it in a very condensed format that, you know, someone who may not necessarily be warm to libertarian ideas or free market ideas may not necessarily spend time reading 80 pages, 100 pages, 200 pages. I wanted something that was really condensed that you could literally read in like five, ten minutes that really breaks down all the ideas. doesn't necessarily kind of tell you what your conclusion should be, but explains it in a way that says this is what it is in a way that people can get it and then come to their own conclusions. It, so it, you could be. Yeah, I'm sorry. Explain to me the whole rent is theft thing. I'm still trying to like, you know, get that around my head. Who was saying that? Basically, what happened is that there was this group of uh, people within uh, libertarian circles that were basically oh, um, they were they were basically uh, they were Georgists, I guess. So communists. Um, from, my, from what I understand, yeah. So basically, they were basically in in, in the, when you take the Georgist point of view, they basically kind of make this distinction between like land and property and. And whether you're occupying property versus, you know, just your stuff. They're, they're like so the they'll... Scientology of communism. You don't really know what they believe, but you know it's kind of out there. But at the end of the day, you still know it's a cult. Yeah. So basically they're just saying that, you know, to them is that, well, if you charge me rent and I can't pay it, then you're going to pay for someone to evict me. So you're taking me out of my property and it's theft. And like it didn't make any sense. And it just misses from just an economic standpoint. If you don't. Like rent creates an incentive to provide housing, so the fact that people can charge rent a lot incentivizes people to make multi-family homes. If I couldn't charge rent on an additional unit in my building, why build the additional unit? I would just build myself a bigger home, and there'd just be less homes for people, and that actually puts more people on the streets. It just it just boggled my mind that argument. Um, so. I, it's one of those things that I wow. uh, wanted to, but in in the, in the book, I don't necessarily make that specific point more than it's just an overall like how free markets work, what does how does the state hurt the free market, um, and they and basically also just kind of how things degrade, because what a lot of people will see is they they focus on what's happening now, they take a look at what's going on now, and they don't really think about how we got here, and how you have to kind of sometimes that becomes really important to knowing how you get out of it. So a lot of it in my book is to kind of explain how like thing even even good or bad ideas may seem not bad at first, but over time they can do a lot of damage and try to walk through the steps of kind of how that happens over time. So that way you can actually kind of see it play out in the real world. So what do you say to those people that think that Airbnb is bad for you know, especially urban areas where a lot of these apartment complexes are now trying to like evict tenants and they're renting out less to regular people instead converting their entire apartment complexes into Airbnbs. Because this was a this was a big issue in like D.C., for example, um, a whole bunch of like lower income apartment 
complexes were trying to find ways to either spike up the rents or they were trying to find ways to evict tenants. And then what they were doing was they were just renting out all the apartments as Airbnbs. And what that did was that really affected a lot of the hotels because, you know, the hotels have to abide by all these different regulations and health standards and these apartment complexes, which are now essentially just giant Airbnbs, they don't have to go through any of that. So it's like the the these apartment complex owners, they've essentially created a hotel that does not have to abide by hotel regulations and standards. And you've got a lot of people that want to now ban Airbnb in places like um, D.C., Los Angeles and New York City, actually, because of this whole thing. So how are how are profits generous in that situation? Well, this is an example of taking the wrong lesson. It's kind of like with food trucks. Restaurants feel the same way about food trucks, where food trucks don't have to follow a lot of the same rules as restaurants, and they want to put restrictions on food trucks. The lesson that people should take away from that isn't that Airbnb is isn't following the rules. It's why should all these rules be on the hotels? Because if it's if if you have a pleasant Airbnb experience, who doesn't have to deal with all these burdens, all these increases in costs, all these taxes that hotels have to, then why do hotels have to? Because they can provide you that same experience and might be able to even provide you a better experience without all those burdens on them. Same thing with restaurants. Why do restaurants have to deal with those burdens? If, if the food truck can provide you a quality experience without those burdens, there's no reason for the restaurant to have those burdens. So if anything, it just makes the case um, for why we need to roll back those rules and allow the people who feel like it's unfair, give them a fair playing field, not by restricting their competition, by giving them a little bit more freedom. And in that case, that also frees up resources and creates just a better situation for everybody to have a better experience, consume more, and have a more robust economy, and also just freer life. So you're you're in you're in New York City, or are you in like a, a suburb of New York City? Where are you at? Brooklyn. Oh man. So what? So how much do you do you own your place, or do you rent your place? Um, rent. Okay. So like r- rent in New York City. I mean it. Without Jimmy McMillan, who would know that the rent was far too damn high? What, what's it's very your, depressing. Yeah. What's your like? OK, so I was driving through New York City and at one point went through the Bronx and we're seeing these uh, the people in the car that I was with. We're seeing all these advertisements for all these new apartments and condos that they're going up. It's like, oh, my God, you could get a house in like the greater D.C., you know, Arlington, Alexandria area of Virginia for the price of like a small apartment that was probably the size of my college dorm in yeah. New York City. It's insane. Uh, what, what, what's your view on rent control and all that stuff? Again, it's you, you, people are just taking away the wrong lesson. When they see the high rents in New York, they're just thinking, oh, these landlords just want to charge a lot of money. But there's a lot more context to it. Um, I mean, you is the rent too the- damn high? The rent is too damn high. The rent is ridiculous in New he's York. On, he's on but the I, record, folks. The rent is too damn high. It is ridiculous. You, in New York City, you basically you, you work to live. You don't, li- um, you know, uh, you basically work to pay rent. That's that's people who live in New York City don't get to enjoy the cool stuff in New York City because they're too busy working to pay rent. But there's a reason for it, um, p- partly because of the, all the burdens that are on development. So if you're if you are a developer and you want to develop housing in New York City. It'll take you years. You'll have to grease a lot of palms before you actually get to build anything. And then when you finally get the build stuff, you're probably going to have to deal with all sorts of issues with labor and whatnot. That it increases the cost to build housing so much that you got to recoup those costs. So you can't affordably create affordable units for housing. 
because there's just too much stuff put on top of you. But on top of it, there's also the New York City's homeless policy. This is something I talked about when I was running for comptroller. Basically, what happens is New York City has a kind of a guarantee. They've had this for like decades. Or if you're homeless and you want to or struggling and you need a home, they'll provide you with a home. So if the shelters are full and they haven't built new shelters because no one wants another shelter in their neighborhood. Um, so that so what they do is they pay hotels to actually house homeless people. So then what happens is that all the hotels are full, which is why hotels are really expensive when you go to New York City, because most hotels are, 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 are filled with people who are basically permanently living in there. Um, and then on, and nowadays, most apart, a lot of new apartment complexes, um, they also get uh, subsidized where they basically, um, basically the government will pay for people to stay in those houses who couldn't afford a home. But the problem is you, you, you eat up so many units of housing that way, you increase the cost even further, which means more people can't afford it, which means the government has to pay for more people to be in housing, which drives up the rents even higher, and it just becomes a cycle where basically eventually no one can afford anything and the government will be paying for everyone's housing. Um, and oh, it's, man. It's, it's, I mean, it's, that's, it's a horrible cycle. That, that's freaking insane. Like I'm working, on a, I'm working on my real estate license here in Virginia. And in the 60-hour credit course we have to take, it's a lot of contract law and basic economics. Mm -hmm. It it just seems like – and I I, I literally didn't know this. Like there is absolutely no free market in housing. It's ridiculous. In New New York. How does – what's it going to take to turn that around? Because I just from my gut reaction – these de- like a lot of these Democrats who are fighting for you know rent control and more shelters and better uh, urban housing, like they bust these people out to vote, and then it's like if you don't vote for these people giving you all these things, then you're gonna lose everything you have. And if you've been living in a hotel paid for by the taxpayer, like that's not that's not coming with a Republican or a Libertarian. Yeah, and that's why that's why I felt it was important to create something that was sort of brief and straight to the point as profits are generosity so that way people can kind of understand that because they may not have the time or the attention span to kind of listen to me talk for an hour but they will maybe can give me five minutes to read a a quick booklet and to pique their curiosity get them asking the right questions and that was sort of the intention there to create something that's really easy kind of like what adam kokish did with his book freedom but even quicker even more straight to the point uh and then that i can quickly seven bucks be given to somebody and, you know, take it from there. But New York is going to probably get a lot worse before it gets better. I mean, now we're talking about universal health care in New York City. Um, the Blasio just announced that. But you guys are um, broke. You, like, have no I, money. Yeah, and our pensions are in, is, a, is a huge problem because we're they're horrendously underfunded. So it's, like, it's insane. New York City is going to be going through some real tough times. If not, I would be, I would be shocked if it doesn't become the next Detroit in the next decade. Um, oh, you're gonna need a lot more heroin needles and abandoned buildings to become Detroit, brother. Well, I'm not saying overnight, but I mean, basically, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't see how they, how without a massive event happening, how New York City turns itself around. I mean, all the, like New York City survives in spite of itself, and I mean, yes, it has has certain advantages that other places don't have. It's access to waterways certain industries that are pretty much really kind of only located in New York City. But there comes a point where the taxes get so high, where the commutes get so long when you're trying to find an affordable place to live, that you just won't be able to function in New York City. 
um, as a business, uh, regardless of what tax benefits the government gives you, regardless of what they do. Um, it just won't work anymore, and that's that's it. That it will happen, and I mean it's happening. You see people moving out every day. Um, so yeah, New York City has got some trouble. I mean, I every day I'm thinking about. I mean, about, that's putting you know, it lightly. Yeah, I mean, every day I'm thinking about making the exit or the exodus from New York City. If it wasn't for uh, my job, I'd, I'd I'd probably be be on my uh, on a tri- on a car down to Georgia right now. Oh, I thought all New Yorkers went to. Uh... Went to Florida, and after they got tired of Florida, don't they go like North Carolina? Aren't they called halfbacks or something? They go all yeah. the way, then they come half halfway back. <laughs> I have I, I I have thought about just going cutting straight to the chase and just going straight to North Carolina because I heard it's pretty nice. I haven't been there yet, but um yeah no, but I mean me and my wife we we've really enjoyed savannah so i mean um, north Car- i mean north carolina north carolina's like they you could save a lot on taxes and you can use whatever bathroom you want so you know <laughs> what whatever makes life easier for you but uh i did read the book yesterday and uh the, the beautiful thing about it is i i've always come from this school of thought that if you you can use very fancy words and very complicated examples and stuff when you're writing a paper in college where you have to be as smart as possible for the sake of it but when mm-hmm. you're just dealing with regular people you gotta just cut to the chase and make things simpler to understand so that way anyone at any reading level at any education level can pick it up and say oh yeah this makes sense and uh i think your book definitely succeeds at that um i I've, i'm really thinking about getting a copy and walking into alexandria ocasio cortez's office that would be awesome <laughs> well I, I am really thinking about it because here's here's the thing man like and you're, you're from new york so i partially blame you for this simply by association of where you live but like every day, like people I know, especially, you know, primarily conservatives, like they talk about or like like the Antichrist. And here's my thing. Like, I think conservative media created her like I really do. I, I think uh-huh. that she's not nearly as evil and sinister and crazy as people uh-huh. give herself credit for. She said a lot of stupid shit. But I mean, who hasn't? But I mean, the thing is, she took out somebody with. You know, she had a ton of money and a ton of supporters. He was unpopular amongst the Democrats there. He was gone. People were like, oh, he took out the ranking Democrat. It's like if you really understand how things worked in that specific election, you'll understand he was always out. And then she ran and people were like, oh, the Republican can take her out. It's like a Republican hasn't held that district since like the freaking Civil War. So now you're talking about someone in a very strong district in New York, and now you have conservatives that are making her seem like, you know, the next Hitler, so to speak. And now that just makes progressives and even some left-leaning independents look at her and be like, well, they hate her, so I must really like her. And then they just give her all this airtime, and then she dances in a video, and it's like, that's supposed to be scandalous? That was kind of sexy. But that's besides the point. Like, I I don't... I, I don't understand how people are able to defend some of the policies that she does put out there because now she has this platform. And what's really sad is that because of the invention of conservative media and all the amount of attention and hatred and, uh, you know, just time wasted thrown at her, her Green New Deal, her 70 percent income tax is the policy discussion right now. Like mm-hmm. a freshman congressman, she's only been there for like a week, and she's leading the conversation on tax reform. Like everything is focused on her now. Yeah, I mean, and then that's that's the thing. She, like, 
she knows what she's doing. She knows that she's trying to shift the Overton window. She knows that she's putting up. I, 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 I am sure she understands. Do you have a bird in the background? Yes, I do have a bird. Okay, in the background. I thought. I I, no, it's all good. I just thought I was getting tinnitus. <laughs> no, so I was no. like, oh God, I'm losing it. I have a cocktail. He's been appearing in all my podcasts lately. Oh, Wally. Um, then, <laughs> I'm sorry. Please continue. <laughs> yeah, he thinks I'm talking to him since I'm the only one in the room, so he responds. But um, basically, what happens with uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez is she knows she's trying to shift the Overton window. It's the same thing that Trump's been doing. They know that if they just put out, say what they want, put out the most extreme proposal possible, even if they can't get it right away, they can at least make the conversation and get everything else off on the board by doing that. And I mean, it's not, it's, it's not a bad strategy. I mean, she really is sort of like the response to Trump um, on the left in, in a lot of ways. And um, I mean, as far as like, I disagree with her on, on a policy level, pretty much, a, um, yeah, pretty much everything. The only thing I've agreed with her so far is that Congress probably shouldn't be getting their paycheck. Oh, they should be furloughed. When she tweeted that, I was like, holy crap. Like, I'm going to agree with this. I'm going to say it, and people are going to be like, oh, you're siding with the communist. It's like, my God, I can't win. But as a person, she seems kind of very likable. And I mean, the the dancing video and whatnot. I mean, I'd be down to hang out with her. Like, just like she seems fun. And, like, I I have a hard time hating her like all these other people do because I run in a lot of, you know, more right-wing circles. And it's, like, because I understand the whole issue, it's, like, she just happened to be the right person at the right time to have won that race, both the primary and the general. It's, like, it could have been really anybody else. And, you know, I think she's, you know, when people think of AOC, I I just see a lot more of the caricature because I've, I've listened to her speeches and stuff. And, like, she's not... I'm not going to say she's not entirely wrong, but like here's the here's how Washington works. You show up here young and idealistic. And after two terms, you realize you belong to your donors and then they start to suck the life out out of you. And then you become a shill. And she's already shown that she voted for Nancy Pelosi within two, three years. She's going to be giving speeches for Goldman Sachs. That's just how it is. And I feel bad for her in a way because of that. Interesting to kind of watch. You know, the evolution of, of Ocasio-Cortez over the years as basically Washington does its job on her. Yeah, because look at so, what it, because look at what Washington did to Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Like they both endorsed Hillary Clinton vigorously, who was like the embodiment of the donor class. Mm-hmm. And then I'm supposed to take them seriously. I will always stand up for the people. I don't think Hillary is what the people really want. No, I don't think she's, she understands, you know, common everyday problems. But, I mean, most politicians don't. I mean, politicians is a rich people's game. Um, and it's unfortunate because they wield so much power. Like, that's the problem with campaign finance rules and all the ballot access rules, that it really makes it where if you're not well-connected or well-funded personally, then you don't have access to the, co- the conversation about things that affect you in every day. This is why, as a libertarian, I want stuff as far away from politics as possible where people can— literally take their own lives into their own hands because their 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 circumstances in life don't necessarily prohibit them from actually affecting their own life like politics does. Yeah, speaking of which, um, I just did an episode of the show yesterday talking about TSA employees that just aren't showing up to work at this point, and I discussed what Calvin Coolidge did to the uh, Boston police strike and what um, Ronald Reagan did to PATCO with the air traffic controllers. Um, 
you guys actually got some really good publicity recently and typically when libertarians are on tv especially nationally uh it's not for something positive but um jess mears the comms director for the lp she organized a cleanup event which has now gone nationwide and basically libertarians are cleaning up state and national parks during the shutdown yeah no it's been amazing i must say a thousand i can say it a thousand times over how much I adore, respect, and I'm so glad that Jess Mears is part of the Libertarian Party because she's always doing amazing work. So kudos to her for organizing this. It did get great press. And then uh, Chrissy Witchers, who was one of our candidates last year in Ohio, just put out a press release, and she has, I think, people at our house right now uh, interviewing her about cleanups in Ohio. So this is becoming a national thing, which is amazing. And now this is hopefully this is just the tip of the iceberg as you know we. As the Libertarian Party takes this approach of just going out there and just doing good things as a party, being visible as a party, um, because that's what—that's the one thing we're missing. I think a lot in politics is—is is a lot of people aren't ideological. They vote for the people they like. They vote for the people who they see as part of their community. And a lot of libertarians haven't done that step of being part of their local community. They're part of the libertarian community, but they're not part of their local community. And how can you expect a lot of people to vote for you if they don't feel like you're, you feel like one of them, if you just kind of think of yourself as an outsider to them and that you're judging them. So by going out there and, and, you know, doing good works in the community, it's one that shows libertarian solutions in action and helps us connect with the community in a greater way. They open up ears and open up hearts to the things we have to say. Absolutely. And I mean, when when people think about trash pickup, like, you know, just just from the looks of it. Oh, that's nice. People doing something good for the community. But during the shutdown, like just from like a marketing perspective, like this is the biggest middle finger to deficit hawks and, you know, people that constantly try and raise the debt ceiling that there is, because what's showing is in the absence of authoritative centralized control, people can still take care of things and yeah yeah. people aren't just going to sit on their thumbs like people always go well we don't do this and who's going to do it or what's going to happen like like for example every time there's a recession like well if the government doesn't bail out the economy then what are we going to do is everyone just going to become unemployed and just sit around like oh well i guess that sucks no people are going to do things they're going to find ways to provide for themselves and in the process they're going to create new opportunities for others to provide for themselves um, oftentimes, necessity is the mother of innovation. Um, but oftentimes, it's 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 government's efforts to slow down that pain that doesn't uh, that basically prevents that innovation from happening. That prevents us from doing the things we might have done otherwise to that might have done more to improve our lives than others. It's like, uh, yeah. Again, when you when when you're when your back is pushed against the wall, you do amazing things. Exactly. And I mean, just watching the videos, I I, I try and avoid D.C. as often as possible. I only live about half an hour away, but I think the last time I was actually in the city was probably about a month ago. And uh, just from the videos I saw, like D.C., the the National Mall, which is what they specifically cleaned up with all the monuments and everything else, like it looks cleaner with them picking it up amidst a government shutdown than when the federal government is actually active and they're doing it. Because like, folks, I'm sorry. D.C. is a beautiful capital, except it smells like shit, like the smell of the National Mall and the city. It smells like garbage. And I saw one uh, video 
from the local ABC and Fox affiliate covering the Libertarian cleanup the other day, and they showed somebody walking over near the Lincoln Monument, and what they see is a Tupperware container filled with urine. And like the people think, you know, it was really funny. Somebody I, I was uh, saying next to, they were like, oh, I bet somebody did that specifically just to protest Trump because of the shutdown. I'm like, no, no, that's just that's just another Tuesday. <laughs> like yeah. that is more common than people think. Yeah, no, same thing in New York City. I, I and I and I've heard stories about other cities where basically this like random stuff and dirtiness is. Have you thing, ever been? Have I mean, you ever been to Cincinnati? Um, not for a prolonged period of time. I okay. used to, I did live in Ohio for four years, but I, I was mainly in Northwest by Toledo. Yeah, Cincinnati is the smelliest city I've ever been to. Got like, it. like it is, and, and that's really sad. And it's it's so funny. Libertarians have to defend every idea and provide every solution and none of their solutions can have an ounce of problems but you look at the people in control who we're arguing against they ne- they you know they always get the benefit of the doubt they can fail at everything but god forbid you try and point out one of their errors and provide a solution that doesn't involve them in it and people lose their minds and now the mall is cleaner by volunteers going out and cleaning it up than actual employees whose job it is to clean it up in our nation's capital. Mm-hmm. I, I, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing with libertarian solutions. Like, oftentimes, the best way to solve a libertarian solution is just to do it. Um, because there's basically, people don't trust people to do stuff on their own, so the only way to get them to trust people doing stuff on their own is to do it on our own. How are you guys going to keep this momentum up? Because we're starting to enter the 2020 election. We already have people jumping in. So this is like, you know, I think there's a good way to start out the year. You got some really great earned press that you didn't have to spend money on. It's not focused on a specific person, but it's focused on a group of people that are coming together to try and get this done. So how are you going to take this momentum and kind of, you know, maximize it? Um, Hopefully we just keep, Going kind of going in this uh, in this uh, direction, where basically local chapters continue to keep uh, doing charitable works uh, in their areas, and basically we just keep bringing as much attention to it as possible, and hopefully it spreads beyond the Libertarian Party. I mean, if this be just becomes sort of a national thing, where it becomes sort of like a pay it forward that goes on across the country, and you know, be, kind of just become, takes on a life of its own. That would be great. That would just be great, just for the sake of the country. But, um, I mean, the press is great, and, I mean, we got some really cool opportunities this year. I mean, we just uh, sworn in Jeff Hewitt over there in California, which is amazing. And then we got a really interesting race in 2019 coming up with uh, Bill Hunt over there in Rhode Island, who basically, if I understand it, could – I don't know if, uh, if he actually has any opposition. So he just might win the state legislature seat outright, the way I understand it. But I think there is some some work that has to be done to do that. But that's an interesting race that could really mean uh, a big – making a big statement in Rhode Island. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, to kind of switch topics, you brought up Adam Kokesh earlier. What did he get arrested for? No idea. No idea. I have not followed the most recent. Yeah, he was he was giving out he was giving out like free copies of his book around New Orleans. 
And I think he parked on a curb or something, and the cop asked for his license, and Adam was like, what license? And now now he's been arrested for that. Oh. Licenses. Uh, like, <laughs> like, you could just tell the guy to tell the guy to go, but... I mean, that's if that's the worst news coming out of the Libertarian Party, then you guys are down for for a great year right now. But, um, you know, in terms of, you know, some of the stuff that's kind of coming out, I haven't seen many statements out about the whole border wall issue. Obviously, I know that the LP is against the wall. Um, Is open borders now a part of your party platform? I don't know. I mean, like I would say probably most libertarians, most party members would probably identify themselves as more open border leaning. Um, but basically the way it's written in our platform, um, basically the platform does allow for support for reasonable restrictions. It doesn't really define reasonable. So, you know, there's, there's some in the platform, it's, it's not quite open borders. Um, uh, but I would say probably most uh, people in the party are probably, at least their sentiment is, is, is close in that direction. Um, and I, or probably closer to the way the platform is written, where we're, when they say like reasonable restrictions, which I think most people would assume that's like a, a background check, a health co- a health check, you know, basically proper screenings before someone comes in out of the country kind of thing, versus you know a massive wall, massive quotas that basically have the same effects as banning drugs or banning guns and creating a black market. I mean, what do you think illegal immigration is? It's a black market in immigration, and like all black markets, it's increased violence, it creates uh, increased bad outcomes and it creates uh, all sorts of basically all the negative effects you see in the drug war um, because it, it hurts people on both sides. Okay. There's people, a lot of those people who are crossing the border illegally, um, they are um, putting themselves at danger. They're putting the property of others more in danger. So pe- both sides are suffering. Everyone's to benefit when you can create a much more legal process, a much more streamlined process that is more generous because, you again, you get transparency, kind of like if you, you would if you ended the drug war. You would get less violence because everything could go through formal channels. Um, so to me, when, it, when we talk about immigration, to me it's just a, another black market discussion, as is you know, asking me if I want to—I'm not, I'm not for banning guns. I'm not for banning drugs, and I'm not for banning immigration. If anything, I want those things to be decided by the market. Um, but again, I think probably most people, not everybody is open borders in the party. It's, no, it's not, and then again, in the platform, it's not explicitly required to be open borders. Uh, but most people are either open borders or they're for, like, basic restrictions. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think the way that you provide that answer is probably the best libertarian official response I've kind of gotten on that because, like— I know that immigration is going to be another issue in 2020. And if we look at how, you know, Gary Johnson did lose quite a few voters that probably would have voted for him. You know, they painted him as an open borders guy. And now you have Austin Peterson, who ran as a Republican for Senate in Missouri, and his Republican opponents were painting him as an open borders guy that wanted to eliminate ICE. And I, I just feel like with this whole situation, like I, I've, I've been really torn on it because, you know, I, I believe in like I, I, I I'm for pretty much anything like this if we could pay for it. And by that, I mean, you know, if a wall will save an American life like I'm all for it. like I'm from a border town. And, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of our hiking trails and a lot of the Wachuca Mountains, there are signs within U.S. land that says once you pass the sign, you're still technically in the United States, but the United States cannot ensure your protection. 
And that's really scary. And well, if you put the wall up there, you're going to eliminate a lot of the coyotes and the drug traffickers and everything else. But it's like what you said, the, the drug war incentivizes it. The welfare state incentivizes it. The big thing that I think a lot of Republicans are going to start ignoring is the fact that I found out where the wall is actually proposed to be, and it's not on the Mexican-American border. It's supposed to be like 20 miles inside of the American border. Because there are several treaties that go against America putting a wall exactly on the border. And when you look at a lot of the land around the Rio Grande, you know, if a flood were to occur, it would wash the wall away. So what's your only option? You're going to have to take a lot of American land and you're going to have to build the wall in America. So if you believe in strong borders, you're, sens- you're essentially conceding part of your own borders. Well, yeah, and that also creates other possible legal issues. Um, but you know, I'm just thinking it through. But again, like to me, saying like the wall, the wall for the purpose of saving lives, it's like when people say, "Oh, we should give more money to the DEA because if the DEA enforces drug rules more stricter, it might save a life." But you probably just save more lives ending the drug war um, in the same way that you probably would save more lives on both sides by just being having a more generous and streamlined immigration system. Because then we, because basically you put a wall, people will find other channels, and those channels will still end up being violent, still becoming dangerous. Instead, just reduce and kill the demand for the black market in the same way you would kill the demand for the black market in drugs by basically reversing the end, by ending the drug war. Um, so, yeah, more drug enforcement might save a life somewhere here and there, but also just exasperates the problem. And the same thing, more border enforcement might save a life here and there, but it might also lose lives because you're exasperating the problem instead of actually addressing the core problem, which is the way we the, – the immigration process altogether. Yeah, and I mean this whole issue is kind of like you know, you're know you drowning yourself in alcohol, so your solution is to drown yourself in just water. You're, you're, gone, you're still drowning. So it's like we're yeah. trying to bandage bullet holes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's basically instead of addressing the problem, we're trying to come up with ways to sort of minimize the problem. But that's still only minimizing the problem, and it's not even necessarily going to do that. And that's that's my issue thing. It's just like it's the conversation's in the wrong spot. We're not discussing sort of the core problem. There's a demand for immigration, so what's the best way to satisfy that demand that satisfies all parties um, in the most mutually beneficial way? Um, instead of trying to figure out, you know. How can every instead of creating a situation where nobody wins, everyone suffers? Um, it's just it's 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 just nonsensical to me. I don't I don't see uh, any upside to the conversation on either side uh, the way it is now. Yeah. So we got to go ahead and wrap up the show, Alex. Final question. Mm-hmm. The longer this government shutdown goes, do you think that's better or detrimental for what the Libertarian Party wants? Because right now it seems like you guys are getting a lot of opportunities to kind of shine that you wouldn't have had otherwise. I mean, from a political standpoint, I think this is great for the Libertarian Party. I mean, it allows us to, uh, one, of course, always make the point that the world doesn't fall apart because the government shut down. Two, it allows us to kind of fill in that gap and provide assistance where, where the government is failing to do so. I mean, these are great opportunities is it um, so? From a political standpoint, it's great. Do I think it's? Uh, well, I definitely would love, you know, as much of the government to be shut down as possible. Uh, you know, I, I would would have much preferred it 
be under different circumstances and circumstances that won't necessarily cost us more in the future. But, you know, sometimes crazy things have to happen in order to make a point. And this is kind of like also something that I feel is going to happen in the economy because I do feel there are. I mean, this is this is pretty freaking crazy. He said he might keep it shut down for years. <laughs> like what who who says that like well obviously we know who says that but he was like oh you know i'll keep it shut for months years it's like i don't know whether i'm supposed to be mad or not it's it's interesting because it's not it's not washington as usual it's very erratic it's very interesting but it also shows the power the executive power um or at least it shows the extent of executive power in certain situations and also the uh, also just a lot of the inefficacies of government in general. How basically just having the wrong people in the wrong spots could just basically shut down the whole thing. So why would we want them handling the majority of our lives? Um, I would rather they handle as much of my life as possible. So when situations like this happen, I don't care. I'm I'm not going to ask uh, for your take on the libertarian presidential, you know, process that's going to come up for your party. Uh, because, you know, I don't want to put you in that position. But the one question I will ask to wrap things up, um, you know, candidate Trump is very different from President Trump in a lot of ways. He's in some ways kind of changed who he is now since he has the job. Do you think you've lost potential libertarian voters to Trump because of his anti, you know, anti-establishment type of attitude? Or do you think, you know, his actions and his attitude have justified why more people who may have voted for, you know, a libertarian candidate before will definitely vote for a libertarian candidate now? Or do you think it's kind of a mixed bag? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you, we've lost people who, like, when I, when we, well, I wouldn't even say we lost people. What well, I would say I, I'll, I'll that, put it out there. Like, I'm, I'm voting for Trump. Oh, okay, understood. But I would say yeah. most most people who I see who like there's a difference between like oh you're gonna vote for Trump versus are are you like an enthusiastic supporter in a sense like a lot of the people who I've seen who kind of hung out in libertarian circles who then became sort of frothing at the mouth Trump supporters they weren't necessarily their their issue wasn't necessarily as much individualism more than it was anti globalism. Um, and I think before was sort of the traditional Republican sort of neocon orthodoxy. Um, you know, they they we they ended up aligning with us a little bit more in certain issues because of their anti-globalist views. But that's not the same thing as sort of being a you know sort of strong individualist. Uh, you know, sort of your I guess a more down the line libertarian strain i guess yeah like like with me for example like it's not that you know i i threw on the maga hat and now i'm foaming at the mouth mm -hmm. necessarily but it's more like you know he's not a libertarian so i would be kind i would feel kind of foolish if i tried to make a libertarian case for him but i think as a long-term investment for a lot of the arguments and discussions we're trying to have trump is forcing a conversation that we wouldn't otherwise be having because now a lot of Democrats are questioning, you know, executive authority. And I've interviewed Democrats on the show and we've agreed on things like gerrymandering and uh, criminal justice reform and stuff. And part of me was kind of hoping that at his conference, he was going to declare a national emergency, not because I really wanted it to happen, but because I think it would have made a great uh, constitutional, you know, crisis in a sense. It would have really forced a lot of people to look at the laws 
and have this discussion. So I think in a way he's shedding light on issues that Americans didn't really care about before. That's what I do like about having Trump and Ocasio-Cortez in office, because they both operate so outside sort of the your convention that it's forcing people to have higher level conversation about politics, you know, really root philosophical, what do we expect government to do kind of conversations that need to be had instead of just talking about, well, should this policy be a little bit different or a little bit different this way? It's really sort of higher level, what is it that we want out of politics kind of conversations? And I think that's, with, with that conversation open, that leaves an opening for libertarians to really help enter that conversation and change it. Absolutely. So, Alex, we had a great conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, come on the show today. If people want to go ahead and grab a copy of your book, and folks, I will include it in the show notes as well, how can they get a copy? They, if they want to buy a physical copy, they can go to buybook.alexmerced.com. And if they want to get a free ebook, you can go to freeebook.alexmerced.com. All the costs is just join the mailing list. Um, and also, you can just find everything that I do and everything that I'm involved in over there at alexmerced.com. Um, just go there and you'll be able to find links to everything you'd want to find links to. Outstanding. Alex, thank you so much for coming on the program, man. Take care. Thank you so much. All right, folks. Well, I think we covered a lot. A lot of these conversations need to be had. I'm glad we're having them. So that's about it. Don't forget to go ahead and leave the show a rating and review on iTunes. Let your friends know about it. Have them hate me. Send me some messages over anchor.fm. We could do that now. You could submit to me an audio message. I'll play it on the show. So as long as you're not, like, threatening me or something or, you know, talking bad about a certain person just so that way you can air your grievances, come on, shoot me a message over at anchor.fm and let's do it. Other than that, I'm Rob So W. Martinez. Take care, folks. Bye.